You're listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number 482. Hello and welcome back to the Outdoors Station. Thanks for bearing with me in recent months. As many of you know, I've been building a new office and studio since, well, before Christmas now. And as I'm doing it all myself, it's taking its toll on my time, much more than I anticipated. Uh, And what with that and business and trying to keep up to date with videos and podcasts, I'm dragging my heels a bit, but I'm trying to get back up to track and releasing as many podcasts as time will allow. Actually, maybe I'll do a quick behind-the-scenes Instagram video for people who are interested to see where I'm at at the moment. Now, I know I've mentioned live streaming several times, very much the topic of the moment, and I've also recently done a few tests, uh, which have been pretty successful. So, therefore, I hope to be starting a series of live video interviews, beginning with Andy Howell and the subject of wild camping in the UK shortly. If you'd like to join in, because they are audience interactive, of course, your comments and questions can be brought into the programme. Please join us uh, over on the newsletter on theoutdoorsstation.co.uk to be kept up to date of when we'll actually be going live and the development. Obviously it's early days, it's live, lots of mistakes can be made, but that's part of the fun. Now talking of wild camping, Iceland has to be one of the last true wilderness landscapes to get lost in, nestled just a few short miles from the Arctic Circle. Wild, remote, impressive, tough and challenging are just a few of the adjectives used by those who have been lucky enough to visit. That combined with the colder weather, which in July, their peak summer, is unlikely to exceed 10 degrees C, makes it the ideal place for a very tough, long-distance personal challenge. Which is exactly what Dermot Cosgrove is going to be doing early in July 2019. Hiking in aid of a very worthwhile charity, that is Dogs for the Disabled in Ireland, and walking north to south, some 620 kilometres or about 387 miles in old money. Through the remotest wilderness, deserts and peaks, Iceland has to offer. Check out the show notes on theoutdoorstation.co.uk for all the links to him, the charity and to track his progress. In 2016, I, because of a conversation with a friend of mine, Hugh Thomas, um, about bird watching, um, I came up with the idea that I was going to go to Greenland hiking um, and do the Arctic Circle Trail up there. And while I was thinking about it and chatting with him about it, I thought, well, if I'm going to if I'm going to go off and do something like this, which is kind of a, an unusual hike to do, I thought, well, I'll, I'll raise some funds at the same time. And my sister has been involved for years with the Irish Dogs for the Disabled. She's a, um, a, uh, a foster mummy for, uh, for their dogs when they take them at the very, uh, they start to get them used to being with families. So I, uh, I got in touch with uh, Irish Dogs for the Disabled, their CEO, Jennifer Dowder. 
I told her what I wanted to do and she said, yep, absolutely, no problem. Um, and in in the run-up to actually going to Greenland, I got to learn more and more about the charity and the work, the fantastic work they do, especially with kids. And it's become, instead of just me going off and doing a hike somewhere interesting and having a bit of fun, it's become very much about the fundraising for the charity and trying to raise as much money as I can for them. Um, the the specialist assistance dogs that they have, um, which they, unlike a lot of charities, they provide 100% free. Um, and those dogs cost about 15,000 euros to, to get one trained and ready and out into the hands of a client. So it's quite expensive and they're, they're not supported. Some charities in Ireland are supported by government funding and others aren't. And these are one of the charities that aren't. Um, and they give a huge amount of aftercare to the, uh, to the people that they supply the dogs to. So they invest quite a lot of money um, in helping people. So it's just been, I'm going to go out and, you know, smash these walks and, uh, and try and do as much as I can for these people. Well, certainly I'll be putting links to the charities and to various things that we talk about uh, during the walk as well in the show notes. So if people want to know more about uh, this particular charity in Ireland, then please go there to uh, to see more details. But there's certainly a lot of useful information and a very, very worthwhile cause. And it's nice to have something behind you uh, for a reason for doing something, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's it's actually, it's a, it's, I find it hugely motivational. Um, I I did a fundraising day the the Irish Outdoor Store 53 degrees north um, helped out and get me um, uh, helped sponsor me with some kit um, via rap and they uh, they had an out they had a day for me a fundraising day in one of their stores in Dublin and I got to meet some of the some of the people that trained the dogs and I got to meet um, a couple of the clients and you know when you realise that one of the girls that I met was hugely active until uh, she came down with a uh, with a, an autoimmune disease and now she's wheelchair bound so you've got someone who's gone from doing adventure sports such as climbing to being wheelchair bound completely on her dog to to be able to have some form of quality of life so when you see that it's like you know these these people really really do deserve a chance and do deserve every bit of help they can get oh, that's um, fantastic no, really yeah. good, really good. It's nice to, it's nice to, well, it's nice to see the difference that you're making firsthand as well, like that. Yeah. So yeah. let's um, let's move on to the actual um, challenge or the trip itself. Um, now, I've not, I've not walked in in Iceland at all, but I've certainly seen plenty of fantastic uh, pictures and suggestions that uh, it is a spectacular vista to to visit yeah. but of course when you look at iceland you basically see the ring road which goes around the outside and i think the occasional road through the middle and very yeah. little else um mm-hmm. now you, you know you, they're um you've got a background in the, in the military which we'll touch on perhaps or and certainly it's uh, it'll be clearly explained in the show notes and yeah. i'm i'm really curious to know you know in the world of toughness how you feel um this is going to be as as a walk as a i think 600 kilometers is it yeah, it works out from the, uh, well, I'll be flying up there on the 7th of July, and I'm getting dropped off at a village called Raufarhofen. Uh, I think that's the only one that I can pronounce. Um, <laughs> and to get to what I've decided is my start point, uh, I've got to do about 25 kilometers. So when, between the drop-off point and where I'll actually go down near Vic, uh, to get my transport back to back to the capital to Reykjavik, 
it's going to work out at about 620 kilometers. Um, so I was looking at it. I'm done, I've done, you know, the Arctic Circle Trail. I did a, another 200 kilometers in France last year and I was going, yeah, okay, yeah, I can do this. I can do this. Now I'm, I measured it out the other day. I put it down on a kind of measured it out on a map of Ireland the other day and I kind of went, oh, um, that's going to be a bit long. <laughs> 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 so it uh i kind of had a, a slight wake-up moment on that but um i've plotted the terrain and i've looked at the terrain over the last kind of i've been i've been looking at this for the last year and a half so i've gone over just about every inch of terrain and spoken to several people who've done long distance hiking up there and um I know where it's going to get tricky i know where i'm going to have to you know uh you know, have my have my options open for river crossings and stuff like that when it when it comes to it if the rivers are too high, and I know that you know when I get to the the final section of it, that's where it's um it's going to be um there's going to be quite a, a couple of rigorous climbs. Um, so it's it's just a question of how I'm mentally preparing myself. But at that stage, by the time I reach those difficult areas at the very end, I'll have you know the bones of two weeks under my belt. So. Uh, I should be in uh, in pretty good shape by then, um, fitness wise, um, to to do that. So, so coming back to the actual question of regards of how how tough it is, it obviously you're starting. I think uh, you're only a few miles away from the Arctic Circle, aren't you? Yeah, it's um, uh, Stangi Peninsula is three kilometres just below the Arctic Circle. Okay, so uh, you're aiming to set off, I think, on the seventh or the ninth of July. Seventh uh, of July. Seventh of July, which is summer. Uh, yep. But I'm, I've just been looking at the uh, Iceland average rainfall and temperatures uh, in question mark summer. The only one they mention is Reykjavik, which is uh, just over the uh, dizzy heights of uh, 10 degrees. Yeah. So to add to the confusion and for people to, who are listening to this to, uh, to take this on board, you're currently working in North Africa and the average temperature is... Well, the average summer temperature here right now has been about 45 degrees. Okay. Um, so I'm heading to, and I think uh, the Riftstangi Peninsula yesterday in the north of Iceland, where I'm starting out from, was uh, four degrees. So there's a little bit of a, a temperature shock to, to be dealt with at the start. Well, I'll say, I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind instantly, I know you're working uh, in North Africa, They're the temperatures are that sort of temperature. How on earth are you training for, for something like this uh, in those sort of temperatures? Well, it's been, it's a question of getting out of bed at four in the morning. I, I, I start work at six, so I get up at four. Um, I'm currently, to, to build up stamina and strength, um, I'm pulling a, a tire around the place on a harness behind me. Um, doing laps of our the secure perimeter fence of the, the base that I'm on. Um, so it's up at four o'clock in the morning and then it's uh, doing another session then towards 8.30 in the evening when the temperatures have at least dropped down towards kind of 30 degrees. And have you ever experienced going from such extreme temperatures so quickly to, to doing a task like this? I have. Uh, when I was in the Legion, I did a, an overseas deployment where we were in um, kind of 30 plus 30 plus degrees uh to come back to france and within within a few days of getting back to france uh, which was in november uh i was sent on a, a commando training course um 
and up into the Vosges Mountains in France. So it was bitterly cold up there. So the the whole temperature shock, um, I've done it before. It's not particularly nice, but uh, as long as you know, as long as I keep you know, I'll be moving. So that'll be that'll be the big help. For somebody that's never experienced something like that, just describe how it feels. What, what does your body go through when you, you you go through such extreme temperatures from, what, 30, 40 degrees? Yeah, well, 40 degrees going back to, you know, even going back home to, to Ireland where it might be 20 degrees at the moment. Um, you know, you end up wearing a, wearing a fleece jacket when everyone else is going around in shorts and T-shirt. Uh, so going up to the even further, more northerly climbs, um, and hopefully the temperature by kind of early July should be up to about six degrees in the daytime. Um, it's going to mean kind of wearing base layers um, and wearing a you know wearing a windproof over the top and yeah and just you know move and and wear you know I've got liners for my sleeping bag. I've got a sleeping bag that's rated to to get me down to minus five. Um, so it's it's kind of preparing with the amount of kit that like that I have access to. Presumably the human body is fantastic adjusting to these things, but does it take you know a couple of days or does it take a week to really get get back into it? Um, it, it takes it only ta- it actually only takes a couple of days to to start to acclimatize. Um, it's I mean yeah it, it's some people might find it a little bit longer. Um, I remember coming back from East Africa in 1994 when it was in the the 40s 50 degrees, and coming back to the west of Ireland uh, where. It just happened to be a very, very cold late April, and you know it was you know maybe seven or eight degrees. Um, and it's again, it's just a question of you know layering and and be, you know being prepared for that. Um, and then you know it, it takes a couple of days to to kind of acclimatize to that. I mean, I, I don't expect at any point I'll be in able to walk in shorts and a t-shirt, but uh, you know it's uh, it's just layering and movement really. Okay, well, we'll certainly come on to to gear perhaps towards the end because I've got a few questions to ask you about your uh, your published listers that uh, that you've put out there. Now, on the actual um, nineteen day uh, diary that you've set set yourself and the distances. I mean, on top of this temperature change, I see that you're going to be topping well almost forty kilometers on certain days. That's yeah. that's a heck of a um, that's a heck of a walk. It's it's a push now. The um, the advantage on those days is that um, I'll be taking advantage of the Icelandic um, F road network, which is their four by four road network. So it won't be strictly kind of cross country and, and climbing and going over very very rough terrain, but it's still you know it's it, doing those distances. Uh, I've been training when I've been back home in Ireland. Uh, doing regular kind of 25, 30, degree, 30 uh, kilometers a day. Um, and then back here, uh, because I can't do quite the same amount of kilometers, I've been doing kind of 15 here uh, in warmer temperatures and pulling a tire behind me just to strengthen up my legs. What, what sort of terrain are you expecting then, a sort of north, middle and south? Um, it's going to be a mixture of um, up in the, the northern peninsula. The first kind of uh, five days is this uh, sub, slightly subarctic tundra. Um, but it's fairly level ground. Uh, it can be a bit spongy, it can be a bit boggy and stuff like that, but it's still fairly level ground. So it, it, should, be, it should be fast moving terrain. Um, the central highlands, uh, the main issue with the central highlands, which is a black sand desert, volcanic sand, is that there's very few areas where there's drinkable water. Um, 
there's uh, there is water flow from the from the glaciers, uh, but they tend to be quite silty. So it means I'm going to have to carry water for a period of uh, of kind of between three to five days. So, well, that adds to the um, adds to the, the challenge. Yeah, it adds to the weight. So, uh, and then when I get to the final section, which are the um, the the Logavar Trail and the and the other trail that's down there, which are which a lot of people just go to Ireland, Iceland to to walk those. Um, that's when I start getting into kind of good, you know, good steep hill walking. So the the four by four track aside, are these is is this route an established route or is it a recognised route in any way or is it something you've just linked several routes together? It's it's not really a recognised route. Um, there's there's the trail that I'm actually following on um, doesn't fully appear on any real map. It's I've kind of pieced together uh, different trails, uh, you know, over the past while using different different map sources and stuff like that. Um, but I've spoken to mountain bikers who've actually done it. Um, I've you know scanned every inch of Google Earth that I can that I've been able to. So I've found this trail pretty much myself. Um, the section going across the from the Axa volcano um, to the 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 main, one of the big glaciers that's there is really just crossing a black sand desert. There, there's no actual trail, but you know there's. Um, it's really a question of kind of going in a straight line more than anything else. And and what dangers are you got to be aware of? Well, um, for me, I think the the biggest issue, especially going solo, is going to be the river crossings. Um, mm. Depending on the flow from the glaciers, they they can be quite high. Uh, so it's going to have to make it's going to be down to making a judgment call as to. Yeah, how how strong the flow of water is, how deep it is, um, and then going, okay, well, I'm not going to cross here, so I'm going to have to shift and um, and find somewhere else to cross. So that uh, that's as far as I'm concerned, is probably my biggest problem. And I suppose it'd be worthwhile explaining to listeners as well that um, as this is completely self-supported, you're carrying all your food and, as you say, topping up with a massive amount of water when you need it. But to add to the complication, you're towing a trailer. I am bringing a hiking cart because when I came up with the idea, well, when I first looked at the trail, I was going to hike from the town of Husavik across the island, which was 470 kilometres. And then I was looking at a few uh, few blogs online, and I found a I found a gentleman, Will Cops Will Copstick, who you may have heard of, um, who with his brother hiked across uh, Iceland from the most northerly point near where I'd be starting. Well, pretty much the same area where I'd be starting, right across the island. Um, now he backpacked it, um, but then he's a whippersnapper. He's uh, he's not a, he's not a fifty year old bloke like me. So I decided that, well, I'd do it. And then I was going, okay, well, to make it more interesting, I would do it unsupported, which means bringing all my food. Um, so I started looking at solutions and I started looking at stuff online and uh, I saw how uh, Leon McCarn and Al Humphreys had gone across the empty quarter in Oman towing a trailer. Mm-hmm. So I, that piqued my interest and I started looking at, tra- at you know, Googling trailers and stuff like that. And I found a company in Germany that makes one. Uh, and I got talking to a German guy who used one of these trailers to cross the Atacama Desert in South America. 
Um, so I decided then, yeah, well, this this is a good solution because you can actually, when you hit a bad patch of terrain where you can't pull it across, you can pull the whole thing onto your back and carry it using your rucksack. So that's the uh, that's my um, creative solution to hauling all this gear um, across Iceland. Well, I've looked at the the trailer website and uh, I notice that uh, it suggests the capacity, the carrying weight is forty kilos. Um, yeah. And I know in your equipment, as I say, we'll come on to your equipment in a while, but you've got mm. down there the Clattermoosen 100-litre rucksack, which presumably yeah. when that's fully laden, that's going to be more than 40k. So are you, are you carrying a rucksack as well as pulling this cart, or is it all going to be on the cart so you've got sort of more control? Um, it's it's actually going to be all on the cart, and I've, uh, I've worked out my load to to kind of max out. Uh, working out with, the, with uh, Ben Grobel, the, uh, the maker, of the cart, um, it can actually go to 45 kilos. Uh, now he recommends 40, but it can go to 45 kilos. So I'm going to go to, I'm going to max it out at that. Uh, I've been training with kind of 40, key, 40, 42 kilos at home, um, filling a bag with water containers. So I, I know what it, what it feels like to pull. So um, it's going to be, it's going to be up to that. And then by the time I actually hit, the trails on the southern end, most of my food would be gone. Uh, I won't need to carry water, so the two collapsible water containers that I have will will be able to just collapse down, um, and I'll be at my lightest for hiking those trails. Right, because I'm looking at various pictures that I can find online of the areas that you're walking through, and as you describe it, the sort of the first section, the tundra, if it's if it's firm enough underfoot, that should be fairly straightforward. Yeah. Uh, uh, going across the 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 desert as such, uh, again, if you know, if if looks on your side and it's not too wet, that should be um, that should be okay. But it's certainly the last yeah. section. The um, was it Logavar uh, section? The Logavar on trails. That looks that looks pretty hardcore as regards pulling a, a cart uh, or getting across some of those rock sections. Yes, it is, and um, there's some of the some of the parts of the trail. I'll actually be able to pull the trailer behind me. Um, and there's other parts of the trails it's going to have to go on my back is it is it a quick thing to to, to change it from a trailer to a, to a rucksack oh yeah it's very easy it's very easy because the way you rig it the way you place your your rucksack on it you leave your straps uh facing upward so you've literally just got to um collapse the uh the poles that come on the side that you attach your belt onto um uh, okay. and throw it up on your back um so the trailer never actually comes off the bag so it, it it can stay on like that, um, but the I think the the first day of the log log of our trail, um, I'm I'm going to have to tackle it's a eleven hundred meter climb, um, in the the very start of it, and then it's downhill from there. Um, so that's going to be the real kind of from as far as I'm concerned, that's going to be the really tough. They're going to be really tough sections. So it's going to be the last four days are going to be hard. Right. Well, certainly you, you are hitting, uh, you say, a 1,000 metres plus, aren't you, at some stage? Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of peaks like that where it's 1,100, 1,200 metres. Um, and again, on the the, the Fimmerhals Trail, uh, I think last year that remained closed for nearly the whole year um, because of blizzards. So I've got to check in with the, well, I've got to log my, my hiking plans with um, the Icelandic uh, search and rescue 
before I start out. And then I've got to check in at the start of the log of hour with the ranger station there um, to get a weather report and make sure that it's clear to, to go all the way. That's uh, That was going to be my next question, really. What's the rules or suggested uh, advisory things that you should do if you are doing a remote hiking in Iceland? Do you have to get permissions? Is it like a permit system, the same in the States, or is it um, sort of an advisory, but you speak to the, the appropriate rangers? Um, there's no permit system, uh, but you are strongly advised to speak to your rangers. Um, and from from what I've been what's been explained to me is that if you once you register with the rangers and you take on board their advice, if they tell you it's okay to go ahead and then you come a cropper on the hills or you just get caught by a, a freak blizzard, um, then the search and rescue will go out and get you and it doesn't cost you anything. If you ignore their advice and you plow ahead all the same, then the cost is on you. So it's it's strongly encouraged. I mean, these guys are there all year round. They're from from people that I've spoken to. They're some of the best search and rescue units in the world. Um, you know, they're really good and they really know their they know their home patch. So you know, it's it's you know, if they say no, then it's no. So you're in you're in good hands there from that point of view. Yeah, yeah. And I've got a I've in in the event that. I can't go through the trails. I've got uh, backup routes planned as well so that I can um, kind of zip around. It won't be, as far as I'm concerned, it probably won't be as interesting um, not to do them, but uh, you know, to, to complete the whole 600 uh, plus Ks, I've, I've planned kind of uh, backup routes to take. And are you taking uh, something like the spot system or anything like that, or a tracking system that people can follow your routes? The the you know, people who are interested in sponsoring you. I am indeed. I'm going to have a, a Garmin inReach, um, and I'll be posting a link on my Twitter feed and on uh, and on the Walk for the Dogs Facebook page. Um, uh, so that'll be up there, so people will be able to follow my uh, follow my progress. Um, I, I used one in in greenland before and they're absolutely fantastic because they allow that that two-way text messaging which is great to keep in contact with home right that'll give uh, give your loved ones a reassurance then in as times change i mean we never hear anything obviously in the uk about um missing people or or accidents as such in in rural iceland or remote iceland does it is it a common occurrence people getting lost uh, not from not from what I've read. Uh, I know there was the the last time there was a problem was in June, I think two years ago, uh, June 2017, uh, when some hikers. Because uh, I've been checking on uh, checking on the trails uh, constantly, kind of a couple of times a week, and they've literally only just opened. Even though we're in, you know, we're in coming towards the end of June. Um, but uh, two years ago, in early June, there was three French hikers um, who were fairly well equipped with uh, with winter gear, um, ignored all advi- all advice and plowed ahead. And I think one of them died um, by the time they were rescued. So it's it's not an it's not a usual occurrence, but it's um, you know the you know the the search and rescue crews up there are prepared for this kind of stuff and. Again, it just shows you the importance of checking in with them and taking their advice that if they say, you know, you, you shouldn't do this, you just shouldn't do it. As you say, a lot of respect for people on their own patch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no one knows their own patch better than, you know, the local search and rescue units.
you're listening to The Outdoor Station, the home of UK-based audio and video podcasts for lovers of the great outdoors everywhere. Since 2005, over 10 million people have listened and over 3 million have watched the videos. Sharing the passion, appreciation and understanding for the outdoors world. When I did my last interview with uh, Alistair Humphreys, we were talking about the time and weight and bulk of taking things, cameras, video, whatever, is to record yes. your to record your event. And uh, you know these things add up with uh, charges and this sort of thing. Now you're you're not going to be calling in anywhere, as far as I can see, and topping up your USB charge. So um, and it's a spectacular place, and I see on your on your uh, equipment list you've got a couple of cameras there, uh, all yeah. of which of course need power. So you know what's what are you taking to record it f- with, and and how you're keeping them topped up? I'm I'm going to bring. Uh, some people have said to me, "Oh, you should bring a uh, a solar charger," but again, solar will solar is good if you're going to if you're absolutely one hundred percent certain that there's going to be sunshine, which um, I'm not. Um, so my my plan is to bring a couple of external batteries. Uh, I used them in Greenland uh, in the past when I you know when I had everything on my back, um, and then for my Nikon camera because being a, a complete bird nerd, um, and I'm going to be walking my first five days or through some of the best bird watching in in the world. Uh, I've gone, I'm going to have my Nikon camera, um, so I'm going to have to pack up with batteries for that. Uh, and then it's it's a question really of being able to charge the inReach, which they're really really good on uh, power supply. You know, they I think they get the you've got kind of a hundred hours of of them being you know if you leave it switched on continuously, whereas I plan just to power it down at night uh, and plow on. And I'll have a couple of batteries for the the GoPro camera that I'm bringing with me as well. Well, I see you've you've got down here a three hundred mil lens with a teleconverter uh, to go onto your Nikon. Uh, yeah. Now that's that's a fair amount of front heavy weight. You're you're pulling a, a tracking cart behind you. Uh, in the distance, you see an eagle or whatever you might see there. That I'm I'm not a bird watcher, so I may have just dropped myself in it. Um, but you see something spectacular that you want to pick. How the heck are you going to hold a camera like that steady uh, for to get a glorious picture? Well, that the the three hundred mil lens is actually. Um because they're the newer grade of, of Nikon lenses, they're actually quite small and compact. Um, so it's not actually that heavy. It's not like the big monster 500s that you see wildlife photographers using. Um, and this is why I've, I've got the, uh, the converter on there as well, which is quite small. So it's not, it's not as big as what people would think. And the, the camera body itself is heavier than the lens and the, uh, and the converter together. Um, and when I was in Greenland where I, in Greenland, I had the whole pack on my back and I had the camera on a harness, um, a specialized harness on my chest. So I hiked like that for for eight days when I was up there, whereas this time round, everything will be on the cart and I will have the camera up on my chest until I hit those final two trails. So uh, I've worked out where the weight is going to be. Um, and again, this is the beauty of the cart is that, you know, if you're going over, depending on the type of terrain, if you can use the cart, you can actually, you know, you can be maxed out to a lot heavier than what conventional hiking will allow. Well, let's uh, let's talk a bit about equipment as we sort of drifted into this area. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm curious to see what you've taken. I'd, I'd, I'd be interested in your in your reasoning. Obviously, 
from a weather protection point of view, you've taken what I would expect you to take. Um, yeah. You, you've got multiple layers of, well, it's not multiple layers. You've got sort of four or five T-shirts and uh, sort of socks and things. Do, do you find that you get through these things on a, on a fairly uh, swift basis? I mean, you're not going to have a chance to wash them, I suppose, and dry them out. I suppose from a military background, it's always kind of been a question of change of socks as often as you can. Um, so, you know, there's, that's, that's the one question. Um, T-shirts... Um, I've got four, t- four light t-shirts with me, tech t-shirts with me. Um, and again, it's, you know, I'll use them, you know, going over, over the space of nearly of three weeks, really, uh, I expect to kind of get through them. Um, I know that by stopping close to some of the rivers or lakes, I'll be able to rinse them out and just strap them, just tie them to the pack, uh, tie them onto the cart and allow them to kind of dry naturally that way. Um, Again, I'm got you know, I'm, it's once I get back to Ireland and repack my pack with food and and everything else in it, it's I'm going to have to relook at what I do, chop and change a few bits and pieces. Um, I think for me, the, probably the most important thing will be to have a couple of warm, like a couple of base layer and a couple of warm layers there that I can use if it does get really cold. What's your insulation layer going to be? Because presumably once you stop, I mean, once you stop perspiring as well and you stop and you set up uh, camp, you're going to want to wrap up and keep as much warmth in as possible. Yeah, it's the, um, I've got a, one of the newer RAB um, Alpha Flux uh, jackets, um, hooded jackets, uh, which is quite warm. And then with, you know, throwing a, throwing a, um, a windproof layer, waterproof layer over the top, um, along with a along with a base layer underneath, I'm going to use. I'm taking the highest grade, I think, of the um, of the icebreaker, the uh, the 200 grade uh, merino base layer. So I'm going to use that. Um, so it should be pretty warm uh, with those. The only thing I think that I can't see on here, and there may be a reason for it, is: Do you not use hiking poles? Do you not find them a, a, an advantage for the stability? Yes, I do, and that's an omission on my part. I do. I will have hiking poles with me. Um, I actually fell in love with hiking poles when I first started training for for uh, Greenland because I had never used them before. Um, but then when I started using them, started getting used to them, I actually wouldn't be without them nowadays. It's phenomenal the difference they make to people. It's not just yeah. it's not just uh, easing the weight. It's certainly everything else. It's balance and all the rest of it, isn't it? It is, yeah, and, and uh, quite honestly, I, there's been one occasion while I was training um, before going to France last year, uh, I probably would have done my ankle a severe injury if it hadn't been for walking poles. Um, they really did save my ankle from going more badly on it. Uh, coming on to the sort of uh, camping equipment, um, you're using a, a big Agnes, which is uh, a roomy tent. Uh, you've yes. got the um, you've got the Clatamousen 100 litre, which is a, a tough. Um, big pack. Why? Why? Why did you choose Glatamoose and Man of Interest? Um, well, I'd looked at at a kind of what my options were for a big pack because obviously I was going to be carrying that bit more gear than people normally would. Uh, and I had a look at the expat pack, and I've, I know a couple of guys who do quite a lot of trips into the Nordic areas, um, and they use the expat. Um, big expedition pack which is uh, they come in an 80 to 100 litre as well uh, and while I was looking at those they were quite expensive and I kind of shopped around and I looked at equivalents and 
I just happened to happen on uh, the Clattermuse, and, and it was it was at a very it was at a discount rate. Um, I think it was a fifty percent discount on it, and I went, okay, well that's an option. It's a really good price. Um, and then I I read a quite a number of reviews, and I spoke to a few people about Clattermuse, and they said, well, you know, you can't find a better pack. Um, so I went, yeah, okay. So I I picked up that one, and I've uh, I've you know. Put it through its paces back in Ireland, and it's 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 bombproof. And uh, one of the other attractions to it is it's an eco-friendly, so they recycle all their equipment, they recycle all their bags. So when you're done with your bag, you send it back to them. They'll actually pay for the shipping, and they'll give you a, they'll give you a, a shopping voucher um, for it as well. They are a phenomenal company, and in all honesty, it was one of the first outdoor companies I met at the um, European Trade Fair when we first started 15 years ago. And when you think about it, the eco um, awareness and what they were uh, doing in the uh, for the outdoor industry and the environment generally 15 years yeah. ago it still beats a lot of companies now. So what they've uh, they've yeah. developed into, as you say, recycling packs and so on. Yeah. Um, it's and, and their equipment is just really built for the job. I, I don't think you can get much better than Scandinavian built gear. Um, I think we're we're a bit behind the curve in in a lot of respects to their thinking. I mean, when you look at the Fjallraven and stuff like that, it's you know they they really do build bombproof kit. And and being ex-military as well, we have a, a huge affinity to equipment. Um, we tend to collect lots and lots of gear, maybe more than some other hikers. Yeah, it's always difficult having a uh, conversation with an ex-military person about going lightweight. <laughs> we're not really built. We're not really geared up for ultralight. I, I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine, who's uh, who I served with, and he's heading off to do the tour of Mont Blanc in uh, in July, um, and trying to convince him that he needed to have an actual lighter pack than the one he had, uh, even if he was only cutting back by a kilo. Um, I was going. You know, it was it was a bit of a struggle. It doesn't surprise me. Anyway, uh, moving on with the uh, with the gear. Um, I see you using the uh, the is uh, um, the Jetboil, the Jetboil Sumo, yes. um, and you're being supported or sponsored by uh, Firepot. Am, am I right? Yes, yes. Firepot have uh, Firepot have been great in their support. They've um, they've supplied me with my with my food. So how many how many packs of food and what sort of calories are they giving you? Yeah, I'm taking the extra large packs. So I've got 40 extra large packs, and I think they're 700 and, 700, yeah, 750 or um, between 650 and 750 calories per pack. They're, they're actually quite big. I mean, um, when I used them in I, – when I went to Greenland um, and France as well, uh, first of all, when I went to Greenland, I used kind of a, a mixture of different different rations, um, and I found the best of them, kind of hearty meal taste uh, variety uh, was the fire pot. So um, I got onto them when I was going just on the off chance. I got onto them when I was getting ready to go to France, and I said, "Well, you wouldn't be interested in sponsoring a few a uh, few ration packs." And they went, "Absolutely!" And you know, tell us what you're doing, and we'll we'll keep supplying you. So. Um, they've been fantastic like that in in their support. Um, so I'm taking the ex, extra large uh, capacity ones, um, and they're uh, they're they're quite filling. 
So for people listening to this again, what's your daily uh, diet? How do you, how do you run yourself uh, on a trip like this with the with the food that you're taking? Typically, typically, um, what the what I'll be doing is kind of my coffee in the morning and you know neck a neck a couple of cliff bars, um, and then just get on the road and then uh, uh, unlike what I had done in the past where I just hike straight through until the evening time. Uh, this time I plan to actually stop, take a break because of covering distances like 40 kilometers. I'm going to stop and take a break, um, cook a meal, um, rest up for a couple of hours and then um, start bashing on again. So I presume there's going to be a lot of light till late in the evening. Yes, it's it's pretty much 24 hours daylight. So, you know, that I'm not constrained by um, by darkness. Uh, which is great, which is actually great. Um, uh, you know, in in France, like I was, I was trying to, I was, may I had to cut certain days short because of terrain and stuff like that had delayed me. And you know, arriving into uh, to you know make camp kind of in the evening time before it got dark. Whereas you know, I found Greenland was fantastic. And, you know, as long as you had good terrain, you could just keep going. Um, so this this is the idea uh, for uh, for Iceland as well is that. I can move at a at a reasonable pace and cover the cover the distance in the day. Yeah, so start early and, f- and sort of finish late and take a good break in the middle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, uh, the two things that really did catch my eyes, you might expect during uh, looking through your your list here, is first of all a kilo and a half of Irish biltong. No other biltong yeah. will do, and uh, <laughs> a liter of Jameson's. Yes, that's purely medicinal purposes. Uh, so I saw it came under the first aid list. <laughs> yeah um the alcohol is quite expensive in in uh in iceland um plus i won't really be anywhere where i can you know pull over in the evening time and have a beer uh and you know there's there's nothing quite like kind of you know sitting there in the evening time have your dinner and just relaxing you outside your tent and uh and have a a wee dram you're also being supported, I notice, uh, by Splash Maps, and I've not heard of them before. What are they offering you? Um, Splash Maps are actually they're um, a UK-based company, um, and they what they do is they put um, maps down on a fabric. Uh, it's a special. I, I actually don't know what type of fabric they use, but it's a fabric that they've come up with, and that's incredibly resistant. And they will actually put your map down on. On this fabric, so you you don't have to worry about having um having your map get wet in the rain, or you don't have to worry about sticking a paper map into a plastic cover. Uh, you can literally just stick this thing in your pocket. Um, so it's great, it's great like that. It's lightweight and it's it's not cumbersome. Um, and I first got in touch with them uh, originally uh, because I on the pro the, with the type of work that I do, um, we have to think about evacuations. And I thought, well, one of the things that I really kind of need is uh, an evacuation map. Um, so I sent, I got in touch with them. And I spoke to them on several occasions and they said, yeah, we can do this. And uh, they actually made me a bespoke escape and evasion map, if you want. Uh, and we kind of took it from there. And they, uh, Dave Overton took a, quite a lot of interest in what I was doing. So uh, we kind of put our heads together and uh, they're going to make a bespoke route map for me. Which will be a nice souvenir as well. So, is that a one-piece map, or is that a series of uh, overlapping sections? No, it'll be a one-piece map. Well, it's going to be quite a sizable thing, then, isn't it? 
Um, it won't be too big. Um, it won't be too big. I mean, there's a lot of the areas up there where it's, you know, you, you've literally just got to kind of point yourself in in one direction and follow your, and I'm, all, I'm very old school when it comes to navigation. I will have a GPS with me, but uh, I've always been kind of map and compass. Um, so, you know, I, I do tend to rely on my map quite a lot. Um, but up there, I mean, when you come to the likes of the, you know, going across the highlands, um, and it's it's kind of well signposted as well. So this map won't be exactly, it won't be huge, but it'll be it'll be quite comprehensive as to the route that I'll be following. Well, it sounds like a fantastic opportunity to see what must be one of the most magnificent countries in the world. Um, yeah. And, and seeing it down the spine, as it were, would be just, just yeah, glorious. So we wish you well. Um, and just to remind people, that's, that's 620 kilometres or in old money, 387.5 miles. Yes. So um, with a fair amount, do you know what the total ascent's going to be? Um, I don't actually off the top of my head. I do have a, um, a profile of the route that I got from uh, Google Earth um somewhere on my on my facebook page um but i mean i've got the it's going to be quite undulating um mm. especially at the start but it's really at the end is when i'm going to start hitting those uh 11 1200 meter peaks but you know what they say you'll be fit by then exactly <laughs> <laughs> it's all downhill on the other side absolutely absolutely the, you'll smell the bar from about 50 miles away <laughs> exactly I've actually got an American friend who's going to be up there around the time I'm finishing. Uh, he's going to be up there on holidays, so he's going to meet me for a, for a few beers. Oh, fantastic. Well, and I'm sure he'll be paying for them all as, as well and treating you. Um, listen, you, that, it's been a fantastic story. Obviously, you would like to keep in touch. Uh, just let us know you're back safe and well, and uh, obviously people want more information. All the links are going to be on the show notes um to your just giving page or the charity page that you're using um as well as all the details about the tracking information and of course you know because i know you're a regular listener so you know the question that's coming of all the things i could have asked you about this trip what should i have asked you what kind of birds am i uh, going to see (laughs) that was one that immediately came to mind i have to say what what birds are you going to see don't tell me eagles um, I'm actually the the highest on my list is a Barrow's Goldeneye, which is quite an unusual bird for the area. So that's uh, it's a duck, <laughs> <laughs> and as my better half sa- says, it's brown. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, a fellow expert like me, then. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, that's going to be the uh, the highlight of my trip, and I'm I'm actually taking a rest there in the area where I'm likely to find it. (laughs) What a great project, and my thanks to Dermot for taking the time to share it with us. We wish him well, of course, and if you can spare a small donation to support him, I'm sure he and those he's helping will greatly appreciate it. We are planning a follow-up interview, maybe even a video interview, once he returns, and then we can actually see the landscape ourselves he actually crossed. If you know of others who also have an interesting story to share, related to self-powered travel, be it walking, cycling, paddling, even horse riding, please drop me a line at info at theoutdoorstation.co.uk. 
finally, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter and to be kept up to date with more stories and interviews like this. So until next time, folks, bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorsstation.co.uk. Thank you.